Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the sixth episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is Boom, Slump, Crash, Bail, Our Fragile Economy. With me are the co-authors of Angrynomics, which is produced by Agenda Publishing and sold here in America and Canada by Columbia University Press. Author Eric Lonergan is an economist and macro fund manager in London. His writings frequently appear in the Financial Times, and he's an advisor to governments and central banks alike. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks very much, Dan. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, his fellow author is Mark Blythe. He is a political economist at Brown University. He has a PhD in political science from Columbia University. He researches the causes of stability and changes in the economy and why, frankly, people, quote, unquote, continue to believe stupid economic ideas despite buckets of evidence to the contrary. I trust Mark will not be without an opinion or two. Welcome to the show, Mark. Pleasure to be here, Don. Thank you. So let's begin. Uh, first of all, let's make it easy for the listener. Give us a sense of what this book is about. Eric, you want to lead off? Sure. So th- this book is is about uh, what's happening in the world viewed through the lens of anger and a typology of anger that, that Mark and I have come up with. So Anger is a very diffuse subject. It's covered in neuroscience, psychology, political science, moral philosophy, covers lots and lots of disciplines. And we've tried to distill this emotion into a simple typology. And then we've brought it to bear as a lens to make sense of what's happening globally, both politically, economically, um, and to explain the current phase um, and then ultimately, we, we don't want to just have a set of analyses, but we also want to uh, put forward some proposals about how to address what we view as the good side of anger and how to contain what we view as the more concerning side of anger. Okay, fair enough. And Mark, maybe particularly with an eye to what's happened since you finished the book, anything more you want to add to, as to its scope and intent? Well, sure. And- what it's also about is the fact that back 10 years ago, even 12 years ago now, we had this thing called the global financial crisis. And it was very badly handled, particularly in Europe, and it caused a lot of misery and disruption. We've just been hit by another one now, the COVID crisis. And the estimates for that are even de- even more dire in terms of economic contraction. And this goes back to the intro line you gave me about stupid economic ideas. The agenda of the book is to try and do non-stupid economic ideas And to try and figure out why it is that from time to time, capitalism as a system produces these periodic crashes, which produce large amounts of public anger, which can either be weaponized in a kind of tribal manner by politicians, one of the faces of anger that Eric talked about, or on the other hand, it can 
signal a legitimate moral outrage amongst populations that the elites who are running things really aren't paying attention and they really need to start paying attention. And that's that's what we're trying to get at with both anger and economics coming together in angrynomics. Okay, fair enough. I mean, the, the pertinence of this book, frankly, couldn't be greater. Uh, for one thing, I happen to live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the site of the George Floyd killing. Uh, so we have that dimension of anger, the racial aspect to add in. But obviously, COVID-19 and the you know ensuing economic woes are simply massive. So we have a lot to cover, potentially. I want to jump right in on the emotional angle, and either one or both of you can answer the questions as you see fit. Uh, there's a statement fairly early on in the book that anger is the most powerful human emotion. Can you explain for listeners why you believe that's the case? Well, maybe if I start there, if you look at um, the, the history of anger, particularly as it manifests with respect to tribal identity, um, and, and this is one of the, the really interesting dimensions to it, which came up when we, we actually did a big data search. Uh, we searched through hundreds of thousands of news stories using IBM's Watson Analytics and to sort news stories by anger, its frequency. And something that came up was sports fans. Um, and, and this was really a key moment, I think, for both of us in terms of understanding how significant anger is. Because it begs this really interesting question that we, we all sort of recognize this. So, so one of the fascinating things about anger is it's kind of universally recognized but poorly understood. And, and if you look at the history, um, in fact, Aaron Beck, the social psychologist and psychologist, one of the founders of CBT, um, has a fascinating description of the role of anger in, in sports events dating back to the ancient Greeks and even prior to that, where sporting occasions would turn into extraordinary acts of violence. I mean, absolute brutality, where thousands of people could end up being massacred. And so we were fascinated by these two dimensions where it, it looks to us as if the sort of socio-functional role of anger is both to create social norms. So it's one of the means by which we enforce our moral code and our, 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 our sense of what's acceptable in our societies. This is the kind of anger of angels, which is essential to our moral purpose. And at the same time, there's a sort of anger of devils, which is this tribal energy, which is a precursor to war. So in that sense, you can see it as the most powerful emotion. Okay. Well, in, in my book, um, Famous Faces, Dakota, which really goes into each of the emotions in turn, I, I in fact, open with anger, uh, and in no small part because of the seven oh, so-called core emotions that facial coding can allow for or, or capture. Anger and happiness are really the, the giants. They both account typically in most human beings about 30, maybe even 35% of their emoting. So are we saying in this case, so the, the prevalence is there already, but if this is the age of anger, are we saying the intensity is greater, the public displays of it are greater? How do, how do we get to angrynomics as opposed to just the human condition that we quite often are simply angry to some degree or another? I would say it's because the economy acts as an amplifier of anger. If you go back to 1994, when there was a big bailout of the global economy because of the East Asian financial crisis, the cost then was unprecedented. It was $40 billion. Actually, no, that was Mexico. Then it was East Asia, it was 160. 
Then you do the global financial crisis, which is basically 13 trillion. Now we're looking at an even bigger crisis generated by the COVID lockdowns. So over time, they're becoming more frequent and more expensive, which means more people are negatively shocked by these things. The world is also an incredible uncertainty generator. You don't really know why it is that your jobs are becoming more precarious. You don't really understand the great dynamics of financial flows across the globe and how that impacts whether your factory will be here or in another state or in another country in five years' time. But those complex processes are there and they are real and they create a great deal of uncertainty. Now, the thing about humans is we love probabilistic risk. We love to gamble. We like to think we're in control, that we know over time that this is a one in five odds, et cetera, et cetera. But with the big stuff in life and increasingly in big, tightly coupled, shocked systems, you don't know the probabilities. So we tell ourselves stories, everything from little parables to conspiracy theories that try and unite us as groups. This is the sign of the normative function of anger which becomes important when societies are under stress, but also in terms of clarifying who is wrong, who is to blame, what we should do, where we should go. And that degree of political polarization that we see now right across the world and the anger that goes with it is, I think, intimately tied into the fact that the economy is becoming more fragile and that people's place within it is becoming more uncertain. So it's not just business as usual. It's how the economy not only feels to serve the interests of most people, it is actually producing that anger by generating a felt uncertainty that they cannot control their own destinies. Okay, I want to run with that even a bit further because really when we talk about anger, there can be any number of, of triggers. I think you've absolutely hit on probably several of those, but I'm going to start with one, which is uncertainty, that the global economy is complicated. I happen to be a fan of Martha Nussbaum, and I'm reading The Monarchy of Fear right now. Uh, and when she gets to talking about economics, which she doesn't do a lot in the book, because it's more on democracy, uh, she says one of it is simply that you know the global mechanisms for the economy are complicated and obscure to many people. And of course, one of the triggers of anger can be confusion. I don't feel in control of my destiny in no small part because I simply don't understand it. Does that make sense to you? Do you want to play off that notion? Sure. I think um, it's funny that you mentioned Martha Nussbaum because she's also written, as you know, a, a really interesting book on anger from, a, from the perspective of philosophy and sort of updating the ideas that, that date all the way back uh, from, to, to Aristotle and the sort of philosophical perspective, which has actually been reinforced by research in neuroscience, emphasizes very much this sort of role as an ethical regulator. But the dimension that you're pointing to is, is about uncertainty uh, and that Mark's alluding to. And I guess to me, you know, that operates at, at multiple levels. So, so part of our desire for tribal identity is as a sort of coping me mechanism with the inherent uncertainty in, in, in our existence. So it's almost a sort of existential predisposition. But I think there's another challenge, which is that we talk about which is a kind of cognitive frustration, you know, which is we, we're, we're operating in societies where we've been encouraged to embrace constant change, whether it's driven by technology, deregulation, insecurity in our jobs, insecurity about our skills. Uh, and human beings really, really find this challenging and discomforting. So, so part of our typology of anger, we have this anger of, of angels and angers, anger of devils, which relates to these kind of public expressions of anger, 
whether it's tribal identity or it's moral outrage. But then the the other component that we look at is private anger. And again, I think this is something that's missing in the literature is how different private anger is to public anger. So public anger is something that typically we're proud of, you know, an Extinction Rebellion protester or a Black Lives Matter protester is, is righteous, correctly so, because they're motivated by morality. But in the private sphere, if a colleague, for example, at work is suddenly getting angry, you're more likely to take them to one side and say, is everything okay? You know, what's troubling you? So we also have this other very interesting aspect to anger that in, in our personal and private lives, if anything, it's proximate to shame rather than pride. And that's another dimension that we try to explore in the book and try to identify the economic forces that are contributing to that. Okay, no, I found that interesting because shame is, <clears throat> excuse me, a combination of disgust and fear. And I want to bring in fear as another component here. Because uh, it seems to me when you're talking about anger, we're, we're seeking to control our destinies. It's an approach emotion. We are hitting out, trying to take down barriers. Fear is a sense that the, the dangers are bigger than us and we might fight, which would take us back to anger. We could flee. We could freeze. How do you see fear and anger interacting? I see it very much in the politics of populism. So if you take a stylized approach to economic history, Let's think about the part of the world that you're sitting in, Dan. Go back 40 years. There wasn't a lot of uncertainty. You left the school. You went out. You joined the union. The union got you a job in the factory, and you made stuff. You then did that for four score, and then you retired, and then you lived for 10 years, and you slipped the mortal coil. It was pretty straightforward. Imagine that world now. The uncertainty that people are asked to cope with over their jobs, their lives, their skills has amplified dramatically over the past 40 years. You're not just substitutable by somebody moving your job to a right-to-work state. You're substitutable by moving your entire industry to China or to some other place. And the way that this rebounds and this, this mention of disgust, I think, is important there. When you have elites, when you have politicians that say, everything's fine, it's all great, fantastic, we're all doing well, and your lived life experience is one of increasing private anger, stress, worry over the conditions of the future. Will I be able to send my kid to college? Will they actually be able to send anybody to college given how expensive it's become? What about healthcare? Why does it cost so much? I, I, I have no job protections. I can't take a day off for sick leave, right? And you have elites telling you everything's fine. That is disgust and the moral revulsion of those elites, which builds an anger, which demands an answer. The people who are able to answer that, rightly or wrongly, are the ones who recognize it for what it is, and that is a root cause of populism around the world. Yeah, no, yeah, it seems to me, I mean, I, and nothing against the centrality of anger. I certainly agree it's a very essential uh, emotion and, and one that's uh, key to this story that we're discussing today. Uh, but it does indeed seem to me that fear and disgust uh, are, are absolutely in play and disgust, even because of the sense of, you know, underlying disgust ultimately is a, is a notion that there's decay, contamination, things are falling apart. Uh, in America, the latest survey I saw was 80% of people in America think the country is falling apart, potentially. Um, let's go in terms of anger and how it's going to be channeled uh, constructively, potentially. Obviously, uh, and different people have different takes on this. The word looting is uh, a very emotionally loaded with lots of negative associations. Uh, you have arguably police rioting is a term that's just as justifiably out there. 
how are we going to move through as a society? And you do have some great solutions in the book. How are we going to move through as a society uh, globally, not just in the States, and channel anger in a constructive way? Well, I guess, you know, we're trying to address this issue in two ways. First of all, we want to give people a, a better vocabulary, because I think one of the most striking features of anger is it's kind of universally recognized. Even children know what anger is, and yet it is very poorly understood. Um, and we're not very articulate. So if you say to most people, what are the four types of anger? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? Why do people get angry? Very often, we're quite inarticulate in trying to understand this. So the first you know, purpose of what we're trying to achieve here is to give people a language for making sense of what they're seeing politically and with social change, which, which is that identify moral outrage when it's occurring. Identify this legitimate evolved response, which is when you see unacceptable injustice occurring. Anger is one expression of that. Now, that, then that needs to obviously to be analyzed carefully, but let's recognize it for what it is, because even that recognition will help us in our response. Similarly, when, you are, when your fear is being manipulated, and I think fear here is often about a scarcity of resources, right? That's the whole issue over, for example, migration, is that the political class is incentivized to make us afraid, and it then triggers this sort of tribal rage. Be aware that you're being manipulated and be aware that tribal anger is a precursor to violence. I mean, this is very, very important that part of the functional role of a loss of temper is actually a threat related to violence. So the first thing that we're really trying to achieve is, is, is change the language and insight to make sense of what's happening. But we're also trying to come up with practical solutions. And, and, and I guess ultimately what these are about is trying to create um, a set of, of policies or, or ideas to, to, to change our society in a way that can motivate us ethically. And we think there are kind of three sort of self-evident harms. One is environmental change, right? Everybody really wants to, you know, facilitate this, the planet's survival. We all have a unifying motivation to do that. Also, reasonable people recognize everywhere pretty much now that inequality is a major problem. It is not an optimal society where 90% of the assets are concentrated in the, in the hands of 1% of the population. That can't be a good thing. And the third thing is recessions. Recessions cause huge, huge human suffering. And so we've tried to come up with three policies, really, or more than three policies, but three sets of policies to tackle each one of those issues. Um, so that begs what are, what are those three? We call use a little hope and happiness right now. Uh -huh. uh, so, so what might the, what might those be? Because I, I loved in the book the fact that you said we have to be politically, you know, reasonable about this or realize what's plausible, what can actually be passed. So I know that was one of your criteria was that it actually had some political viability. Uh, so it was making progress, but not you know just a pipe dream. All right, so I'll take this one. Let's, let's think about the background conditions on this, and let's just think about the notion of inequality for a second. It's not the fact of inequality that causes problems. It's the consequences of inequality that causes problems. So if you live in the United States, everyone will tell you that personal taxation is onerous, it's too much, and we need another round of tax cuts. But if you go back to when the United States was at the absolute zenith of its power in the mid-1950s under Eisenhower, 
The top marginal rate of taxation was close to 90%. The entire economy overall was much, much more skewed towards the middle class. That huge skew of assets as deriving income in the hands of the top 10% or above simply wasn't there. And we've geared the economy towards that segment of the population and their preferences for the past 20 to 30 years. And it's now close to breaking point. So you have to do something about this. But if you come out of the gates and say, let's raise taxes on everyone, right? You're done. It's not going to happen. Corporates should certainly start paying taxes because these days they basically don't. But that's a minor one. So here's some ideas that we have. I'll take the first one, Eric, and jump in with the next one. The very first one is, if you look at the S&P today, the top five stocks that drive around 20% of its action are all the digital giants, Amazon, Google, Apple, etc. Apart from being huge tax dodgers, what is it that these companies actually do? They take our data that we give them by playing with their toys and monetize it. Well, if this was, let's say, mobile phone telephony, the way that it usually works is you allocate a bit of the spectrum, you have an auction, and then you give people the right to use it for a while. But we give away our data for free. Without our data, those firms don't exist. Why are we giving that away for free? That's our asset. Shouldn't we have the right to monetize it? Wouldn't that be some way of raising revenues that we could use for the things that we need to do to counter those three big harms that Eric was talking about? So that would be one idea. Eric, do you want to do the SWF? Sure. So, yes, yeah, so as Mark's saying, you know, we, there are a lot of creative and interesting ideas out there, an awful lot. And the data dividend is is a kind of innovation on the idea of a basic income. But instead of, you know, people criticize a basic income by saying you're getting something for nothing. The data dividend is essentially just exercising your, your property, right, as Mark described it. But our other idea is one of the things that's really interesting about the world at the moment is the developed world has a huge gift, which is that the the... the and, and this is where, unfortunately, we have to get into economics. So bear with me. I'll try and keep it as clear and jargon-free as possible. But governments can currently borrow at negative real interest rates. Now, what does that mean? That means that the U.S. government can issue a 30-year treasury at a negative real interest rate. So that's it's negative after the effects of inflation. What that means is that the private sector, global savings, is effectively paying the U.S. government to borrow. Now, here's the thing. If an endowment like Harvard's endowment or the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund or the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund can generate a return on assets of 6% real, which in many of these cases they have done over 20 or 30 years, why doesn't the government issue some debt and buy some assets and just by the power of compound interest and, and as an arithmetic fact, it will generate, it will be able to repay the debt and be left with the assets in 15 or 20 years' time. So the, the state effectively has a huge advantage here to acquire assets under an intelligently structured sovereign wealth fund or a national wealth fund. So it's got to be properly regulated, operating at arm's length, just like many sovereign wealth funds are across the world. And our suggestion then is that you actually give equity ownership in that national wealth fund to those parts of the wealth and income distribution who don't have assets currently. So it's a very, very simple way. You know, the US government, the British government, European nations could frankly could set this up within three to six months. And over 15 years, they could also distribute ownership to their population within three to six months. And instantaneously, you are giving a stake 
in the asset base of the global economy to people who currently have no assets, which is, and it, it doesn't mean that it's not money that, that arrives immediately. It's an investment for the medium term, which they could then draw down under certain circumstances. Now, one of the beauties of this is that it can have a huge impact. It can give assets to people who don't have assets. It doesn't fit neatly into a partisan left or right division. I mean, in one sense, this is kind of shareholder capitalism, right? So this will appeal to traditional ideas of the right, but this also appeals to traditional ideas of the left about redistribution and ownership of assets. But it's an innovation. So we're interested in policy ideas that cut across the political spectrum, are genuinely new, and really tackle um, some of the, 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 the fundamental problems that we all recognize. And before Mark will come back with some other ones, but, but a, a second one that I think is really interesting has come up from the, is, is partly motivated by the economist Claudia Sam. That's S-A-H-M. And you can look her up on Twitter or Google her. She's a former Federal Reserve economist. And she's come to the same conclusion, which is that we have, an, you know, we look at how low interest rates are in the United States. What is the Federal Reserve trying to do? And it's so clear that monetary policy, is all of it is affecting through asset markets, through the S&P 500, through corporate bond markets. Why not transfer checks automatically from the Federal Reserve to the population? This is now increasingly recognized across the political spectrum by economists the world over. And it's purely a failure of the mind. And we want to try and get popularized these ideas because they are new innovations that would dramatically change people's lives. Okay. Well, I, I think they're they're frankly fascinating. The first one intrigues me in part because I'm a big fan of the book Surveillance Capitalism, which mm-hmm. investigates, you know, how our data is indeed being used and monetized and to get something back for us. And earlier in my career, I was at Consumer Affairs in the director's office in New Jersey very much trying to understand what was the consumer experience and what were you know, fair terms. The National Wealth Fund is also intriguing. It reminds me a bit of uh, Cory Booker's notion of baby bonds uh, during his you know, nascent campaign that didn't get him all the way to the White House, certainly. Uh, but just the other night on TV, I was watching and a, a black woman was saying, well, the critique is we're burning down our own neighborhood. Why would you do that? And her point was, I don't own anything here. This is, in a sense, not my neighborhood uh, because I'm not part of the asset class. I have no investment. I have no future that I can see. Uh, I, I find both of these really striking, and they strike me also as plausible, just potentially. Um, I don't know. If, I don't want to cut you off prematurely on this, and Mark, you want to maybe jump in a bit more. But I, I love these solutions. I don't know if there's more you want to say on that front. I'll just build a little bit on what Eric said to make two points. And the, the first one is, we just missed another opportunity to take an opportunity. Um, so when COVID happens, just as happened in 2008 and just as happened with 9-11 and just as happened with East Asian crisis, every time that there's a crisis, the Federal Reserve cuts rates. This is part of the reason, not the whole reason, why they're on the floor and why when you factor inflation, you get what Eric calls negative real rates. Now, basically, people in financial markets who have assets have already figured this one out that whenever there's a bump in the road, the Fed's going to do everything it can to stop the value of those assets falling. But people panic. They dump equities. They want to hold bonds. They want security in a moment of panic. So all those equities go down, and you saw this with the crash in the stock market that happened in response to the COVID lockdown. Now, the Fed has basically pumped money into the economy, and, and the Treasury has given corporate bailouts, particularly in the US, and that has raised the value of those assets again. No one's had to book losses. 
Well, there's a bit of a problem with this because it's meant to be called capitalism. Risk and reward are meant to be aligned. And if you basically guarantee asset prices, what you're saying is that the people who already have everything, don't worry, you'll get to keep it and we'll make sure that it keeps going up in value, which is simply going to increase inequality over the long run. If you are going to basically behave this way, then you have to have some other mechanism for making sure that that inequality doesn't get out of control. And that's part of the reason that we think a sovereign wealth fund, a data dividend and what's called helicopter money rather than quantitative easing is the way to go because it will kind of put a pinch in those processes. Okay. Let me, that's great. Uh, let me go back over a few movements of recent times that uh, certainly would have an element of anger and, and outrage to them. Uh, Me Too movement and, and Harvey Weinstein. We've got Black Lives Matter, you know, spurred or respurred or extra fuel on the fire due to George Floyd. But we also had Occupy Wall Street. Do you think some equivalent of that? Uh, I'm speaking more from the left side of the political spectrum. I'm going to come to the right side in a moment. Do you think Occupy Wall Street in some fashion is about to come back uh, or is it going to be overshadowed by Black Lives Matter? I mean, how is this dynamic going to work going forward? Because I don't think we're out of COVID-19 and the economic woes anytime soon. And seen, In fact, I've seen forecasts that we could be suffering the after effects for a full decade. You're absolutely right. But again, the thing about those estimates is they're only as good as the other estimates and the estimates are only as good as the data. And, you know, there's lots of uncertainty here. I personally think that there's no way that you put Black Lives Matter back in the box. I think that the uh, events in Georgia and then the example of the white woman in Central Park calling on the black bird watcher, threatening his life with the police effectively. And then, of course, George Floyd has produced in this moment the kind of enough is enough. This one's not going away. And that takes a lot of the action with the left of the political spectrum as well because they tend to be much more sympathetic to those civil rights and racial equality agendas. But there's also another generic problem with the left, which is one is never pure enough. So you see this in the phenomenon in the United States with some Bernie supporters whereby once their candidate drops out, that's it. They'll vote for the libertarians rather than vote for Biden, even though the job is obviously defeat Trump. So the sectarianism of the left is its own weakness as much as anything else. But I think in terms of the United States, much of our energy and much of our anger, which falls very squarely into the righteous anger that we talk about in the book, is basically around the issues raised by Black Lives Matter systemic racism, institutionalized inequality, and, of course, the economics that underlies all of that. Just to give two statistics, which I I, I tweeted out recently, uh, there's a Federal Reserve of Boston study that looks at family net worth, right? So your assets minus your liabilities, what do you live with? If you are a white family in Boston, your family net worth or your median family net worth is $247,000 a year. If you're a black family, it's eight bucks. Let me say that again, eight bucks, right? That's astonishing, right? Let's think about this one, where you are, Minneapolis. Uh, 76% of homeowners, uh, who, 76% of whites own their home in the most desirable neighborhoods. 24% of uh, black residents own their homes in far less desirable neighborhoods. What does that do to their ability to get a home equity loan? What does that do to the ability to remortgage the property? To, op- to use that as credit to open up a business, to do the types of things that make an American life possible. And this has been institutionalized now for generations. 
So I think that society has finally had enough and that anger serves a very useful purpose here in telling us, no, no, we're not going to calm down. This has to be solved. Okay, well, that reminds me very much from the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr., uh, where he said, you know, essentially black Americans have been given a quote-unquote bad check by white society, and that check came back marked insufficient funds, uh, that it just, you know, was an obligation not fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Part of what I find interesting in your your National Sovereignty Fund concept is that it, it's not race demarcated necessarily. I can certainly imagine the pushback for anybody who's uh, of a much more conservative uh, ilk to Cory Booker's idea of baby bonds, which really was geared toward trying to close that horrendous in- inequality of assets that you were re- referencing a moment ago, Mark. How do you think we're going to move forward? Is the National Sovereignty Fund something that can win traction on both sides. I guess I'm looking at the shadow of the Tea Party movement and fears about socialism and so forth. Um, what's going to be the argument that brings those folks into the fold who I guess will identify as Trump supporters and who feel that are left out economically? Uh, is this going to be a good way to bring them in and tamp down their anger and, and get us to a better place? Well, I'm reminded here by, by one of the observations that, that Mark has made in the past. You know, one of the things that's very concerning, you know, I think most of the examples you gave of, of moral outrage are, uh, are, very, are very benign. They, they are necessary emotional reactions, right? This is how, as human beings, we address injustice. Um, you know, Cornell West put it put it very beautifully, I thought, and, and, and appropriately in saying, what would it say about our society if there weren't protests when you see something like this happening? Um, and I think he's absolutely right in terms of so. so but but the, the, the global phenomenon of neo-nationalism, which really means that nation states are sort of reasserting themselves, um, both in terms of identity, but I, I guess more constructively as decision-making units, is, is one of the things you notice in political ideas is that people copy each other, and they will particularly copy success. Um, and this, I think, is where the hope is for some of these uh, more innovative policies, is you start seeing... So let's say you're, you're, you're on the political, political end of the spectrum where you go, oh, I don't like the idea that this is sans socialist. And then you go, well, hang on a minute. I mean, have you seen what's happened in Singapore? Singapore is held up as a kind of beacon of, you know, the effectiveness of the capitalist or free market system. So if Singapore can have a highly successful sovereign wealth fund, you know, why can't Britain or Germany or the United States? Um, so I, I, think what, I, I think what we're going to see happening or what I hope happens is these ideas, because the entire developed world is pretty much confronting the same problems. And as we get people implementing these creative solutions and they're seen to succeed, in a sense, the debate dramatically changes. Instead of saying, you know, isn't this a good idea? You suddenly look stupid if you're not doing it. Okay. Um, Staying with outrage yet again, uh, it can be thought of as a combination of anger and surprise. Is the surprise that we now have video uh, of police uh, being, you know, ultra aggressive is the surprise uh, just how much the, the system can collapse uh, faced with something like COVID-19. Where, where would you see the surprise elements? It sounds like a lot of these issues have festered and existed, you know, for quite some time. I mean, you we referenced earlier Eisenhower in the 50s. That's definitely in the rearview mirror. Uh, where's the surprise come in, would you say? 
Uh, I'm very fond of the phrase, shocked, yes, surprised, never. In the sense that what we tend to do, again, another human psychological trait is to, is to discount. Economists are very fond of this term, hyperbolic discounting. But a very simple way to think about it is using the analogy of black swans that Nassim Taleb gave us, right? So you're, you should be genuinely surprised by a black swan because it is literally unpredictable. You cannot predict it from any day that you have. But most of what gets us in this world are what you could call gray swans. We know that they're there. For example, pandemics, right? So we know that there's swine flu. We know that there's SARS. We know that there's a whole host of things. We know that our behavior in chopping every tree down in the Amazon is going to rebound on us by creating more human-animal contact and more strange viruses crossing barriers. So we know the stuff there, but we effectively discount it on a day-to-day -day basis because we have to pick up the kids from school and we have to wonder where our next paycheck is coming from. So in the act of discounting these things, which we know really know are threats, when they come and get us, we feel not just surprised, we're almost angry that we didn't see it coming because we shouldn't have. And that gives it that extra kick, which I think pushes it into a sort of politicized form of anger and makes people more willing to politicize those moments. Okay. Well, my favorite saying, or one of them is uh, from Fran Leibowitz, no matter how cynical I get, I can't keep up uh, with de developments in the world. Let's imagine for a moment that Trump wins re-election. Uh, he is someone who's you know been a more divisive figure. He's obviously going to be opposed to uh, a whole raft of things that might be progressive. I mean, where where is this game going to play out in terms of agronomics if, in fact, Biden, by chance, does not win this election? Shall I have a, have, a, have a go as somebody who sits outside of American politics? Um, sure, by all means. <laughs> I mean, I guess, uh, you, know, you know, Trump, from the perspective of, of angrynomics and the ideas that we've been discussing, Trump has this extraordinary native intelligence of uh, identifying which button to press and which trigger to pull. And so he will effortlessly both use, you know, moral outrage, so he will travel to the Rust Belt and he literally used the phrase, I am your voice, which is a concept from moral philosophy, right? I mean, one of the key aspects of ethics is about giving voice to those who are affected by something. And so he will play on ethical grievance about how large communities have been ignored, how free trade and deindustrialization has affected their lives and their communities. So he will use what on the face of it is, in fact, an ethical argument. And then he will switch to going to a community where there are fears about immigration. And he will try and, you know, stoke the flames of tribal aggression. Um, and so, you know, my, my hope is that people will increasingly uh, see Trump for what he is. But there's absolutely a, a, a tension here because... You know, very often when we are confronted by difficult decisions, particularly in matters of political choice, or when we're, we're seeing these events on our televisions or on our screens or on our phones, because identity is so important to all of us, we often ask, you know, which side am I on? And we try almost to identify which side is our group on before we make our own judgment independently. Um, but, you know, so, so my, my hope is that in a very strange way, uh, he's a kind of, you know, his strength, which is this kind of authentic transparency, will also start to become a cynicism on behalf of the American population, which is we kind of seen you for what you are. 
um, and we're not really going to tolerate a lot of it anymore. But that's okay. well, wishful thinking. Sure. Well, I, I guess one of the things that strikes me about Trump, and there are so many things that strike me, is as a businessman, he's been a builder, at least historically. Uh, but as a politician, I, I'd be hard pressed to say he's built many things or created many bridges mm-hmm. for people. But I'm looking ahead and whether it's Biden who wins or it's Trump that wins. One thing that will not change that we can very safely predict is that we are moving from a white majority population to one that will not be so in the future. And when I'm thinking about tribal outrage and racial resentments, and then those same people also feeling like they're on the short end of the economic stick increasingly, I'm just I'm looking for a way and I'm hoping I, I love your solutions. I'm hoping for a way that can bring people together here so that there is some hope. Obama ran on hope. Uh, Trump ran on economic in, you know, carnage in America. Um, two very different people, different visions. Um, you know, As we close here, I don't know if you have a last word you want to say on what you see in the future and where you pin your hopes over and above your, your solutions. Yeah, I, I jump in here and say the following. The reason that we highlight anger and we don't go into uh, or we don't sort of put the front foot on cultural explanations for what we're saying. It's because it's possible to change the economy. But if you say basically there's a huge upswing in racism, why? Because more people are racist. Well, not only is that circular, there's not much you can do about it. And the thing about, as I said, with the economics, you actually can change things. You can get people assets. You can change distribution to certain. Now, there's a counterfactual that gives me hope, which is the following. From the period from about 1994 to about 2000, across the developed world, even in the United States, real wages for what you would call working class people were actually going up. And at that point in time, you didn't hear much about Antifa, if it exists. You didn't hear much about the neo-nationalists. You didn't hear much about race and immigration as a huge panic. But once those wages were crushed by a combination of financial fallout from the banking crisis, local austerity policies, and everything else that went on, then, yeah, guess what? People started to feel nervous. They were uncertain about the futures. They looked to their tribe for signals. And they also have lost faith in the elites. My concern for Biden, to the extent that I have one, is that no one believes him. It's not that Trump is horrible. People can think Trump is horrible or Trump is brilliant. You actually have to believe that the other guy is going to deliver. And that may be the weakness going forward. But to me, I put my money on economics as the underlying tension and not about anger in the economy. The two of them are extricably interlinked. And if you do something about the economy, you really can't do something about the anger. Okay, well, that's a chance for us to close on a a nice high note. I want to thank you both, Eric and Mark, uh, for being with me today. This has been episode number six, Boom, Slump, Crash, Bail, Our Fragile Economy. To check out other episodes for my books and lectures and so forth, uh, there is the three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for my guest today, uh, please email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you'd like to give a star rating for the show or a review, by all means, please do so. Uh, Finally, I'd like to close every episode with an epigram that's appropriate to the topic for the day. So I was noticing the other day one of my favorite authors is Dominique Mosé at the Institut Montaigne in Paris. Uh, And he's just written about what he calls the age of anger is upon us. And toward the close of his blog piece, he says we may need to add a third 
index, not just gross national product, not just gross national happiness, which has been used for now, I think about a decade. He says the new third really important index might be what he calls GNA, that is gross national anger. So on that note, until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.